All right. Uh, welcome, everyone. We wanted to give a couple of seconds for everyone to log on today, um, but I think we'll go ahead and get started. Um, we should start with introductions, probably. So my name is Shauna Carey. I am the Chief Communications Officer at IDEO.org, and you'll learn a little bit more about IDEO.org and what we do in a minute. Um, and I'm joined by my colleague, Michelle. Michelle, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Michelle Moore, and I am the Marketing Communications Lead at IDEO.org. Great, so we are here to talk a little bit about human-centered design um, and how you can use it to enhance your communications and uh, make them more resonant for the audiences that you all serve. Um, I'll get started, just talk a little bit about that goal. So hopefully today, by the end of our hour or so together, you will feel like you've learned a little bit about human-centered design or hopefully deepened your understanding if that's a concept and a methodology you're already comfortable with. Um, and most importantly, understand how it can actually help you practically create more impactful and resonant communications. So our goal is really for you to walk away with something that you could try tomorrow or next week um, in your own practice. Um, so human-centered design isn't about a totally new way of doing things. It's about a number of little tools and behaviors that can really help increase our impact. And so our goal is for you to walk away with a couple of those in your back pocket. Um, and we'll end with a bit of an activity to help you prepare. So maybe before we get too deep into it, we should tell you a little bit about who we are and what we do. Um, IDU.org is a nonprofit design firm. We were founded 10 years ago um, and we spun out of the global design firm IDEO, which some of you may be familiar with. So IDEO is a 40 year old design firm, um, originally started in product development um, and in Silicon Valley. And so IDEO designed things you might be familiar with like this, which is the first laptop computer. Um, they also designed the first mouse for Apple. Um, and so really started in this like traditional realm of product designers. I like to think about it like things that make a sound when you drop them. Um, and it was this mix of engineers and designers. Um, but what IDEO sort of became famous for doing or trying was blending that traditional um, design approach where engineers and designers are trying to invent new solutions with um, social sciences and anthropology and ethnography and bringing in folks to the table who can help really understand deeply the motivations and aspirations of people. And then instead of trying to invent a new product and then figure out how to sell it to people, really inverting that process to be about understanding people's latent wants and needs and then designing products and services and things that, that meet those needs. And so, you know, started out designing these relatively straightforward products. Other things you might be familiar with are things like the Swiffer, uh, which is also designed by IDEO. Um, many of the tools in your home kitchen we might have touched in our day. Um, but pretty quickly, we started to realize that this same methodology for designing innovative products could be applied to designing pretty much anything else that felt thorny or difficult to create. And so over the last, I'd say, 30 years or so, IDEO has moved away from exclusively designing products and really the bulk of its work today is around more complex problems. Um, so an example of that would be redesigning the way that people cast their vote in Los Angeles County in California, which as some of you might know, if you're based in LA, it's the nation's largest and most diverse county. It has some unique challenges around accessibility um, because things are quite spread apart, has some unique challenges around disenfranchisement relative to how many uh, new Americans and new citizens and folks with um, loved ones who have um, various citizenship statuses live in the county. And so what we try to do is understand everything from how do you redesign that entire experience? How do you make sure that from the voting machine people are using to the information they're getting in the mail um, to the way that they feel on voting day and whether they feel enfranchised and empowered or not, like how do you redesign that experience to really ensure people are able to cast their vote clearly, effectively, and in a way that um, sort of underpins their sense of citizenship? So as we started tackling these more complex challenges, um, unsurprisingly, we got really curious about where design and this way of working could be applied to some of the thorniest challenges in our world today. And as many of us know, and I'm sure most of you on this call spend your time thinking about, those challenges often sit in the social sector. So there are challenges around health and livelihoods and mobility and housing. Um, and we really wanted to figure out like how could this way of working that's inherently quite collaborative and multidisciplinary be applied to those sorts of problems. And so 10 years ago, we spun off IDEO.org to, to take that human-centered design methodology and apply it to the types of challenges that we see in our neighborhoods and communities around inequity and oppression. 
So that's our mission. Our goal is to help our partners who are generally nonprofits, governments, or businesses design a more just and a more inclusive world around us. Um, and we've had, we have studios in three places. So we're in the United States in both San Francisco and New York. Um, and also we have an office in Nairobi, Kenya that services the East African region predominantly. Um, and through those three studios, we partnered with organizations and communities um, in over 30 countries. And we work on issues from agriculture to financial services to healthcare, um, things like that. Uh, and a lot of what we do is design products and services, but since we're here today with all of you communications folks, we'll spend most of our time talking about how this same methodology can be used to design campaigns, brands, visual identities, um, and messaging that resonate with the populations it aims to serve. And in the work that Michelle and I do, we're predominantly concerned with folks who are often left out of more traditional or not um, served by traditional messages and brands that are created for a majority of folks um, and inherently then leave out people who are more likely to be marginalized in the first place. Um, so we spend our time understanding like those kids that aren't getting to college and staying in school, like what information are they not getting that's going to help them get the financial aid they need or um, refugee organizations that are trying to reach and support their communities like what can we do to expand their reach and influence and advocacy and so we're partnering with folks to to expand their voice and influence so with that said i will move on to a little bit more about like how do we do it so what does human-centered design look like um there are about 160 folks on this call. So I will assume that many of you um, are familiar with human-centered design in one form or another. So um, I'll just tell you a little bit about what we mean when we say, when we talk about this methodology. Um, so as I said, human-centered design is really at its core an approach to problem solving that starts with understanding people's motivations and behaviors and ends with interventions that are really tailored to and fit for purpose to meet their needs. Um, and ideally that that helps us change behavior that helps us make people feel more connected more like they belong um, they get better gets better access to services. Um, and so really like communications are at the heart of any human centered design intervention. The process of doing this is not very linear, but for the purposes of explaining it, I will tell you that it has roughly three stages. Um, these stages can be doubled back on, um, but generally speaking, we start with an inspiration phase where we are speaking to real people, hearing their stories, immersing in their context, and really understanding what drives their information and behavior today. What's important to them? What do they value? What do they fear? What are their barriers? Um, then once we understand the context, we move into a phase of ideation and prototyping where we're trying to come up with as many ideas as possible in a divergent way of what could solve those challenges. And then prototyping and testing those ideas to see what works and what sticks. Um, and then the final phase is implementation where we like take what we learn from all that prototyping and weave it together into a campaign or a brand or a service um, that is holistic and ready to succeed out in the real world. And ideally, because we've done that testing and prototyping, we're confident by the time we're implementing something that it will resonate because we've allowed real people the chance to influence and own it and build on it with us. Um, and that's really at the heart of human-centered design is we wanna create a process in addition to outcomes that are more inclusive. So like I said, this is what the process looks like. Um, it actually generally feels a little bit more like this, which is very, it can feel messy at times, it can feel ambiguous. Um, we're talking about a way of working that includes lots of collaboration with stakeholders who aren't traditionally invited into designing brands and campaigns. And so I think often on our path to get to something that we feel really good about, um, human-centered design also asks us to like live with some um, ambiguity and some disequilibrium for a while in the hopes that we'll get to a better outcome. Um, and you'll see that a little bit in the case studies that we're gonna share today. Um, I'm going to dive a little bit into what the phases of the process actually look like in practice. I'm going to use a, a real example of some work that our team did in Zambia um, to illustrate that. And then uh, I'm going to invite Michelle to share a, a few more examples that might be resonant to some of the work that you all do in your day to day. So in the inspiration phase, our goal is really to uncover clues from people, the real people who will be impacted by the things we're designing about what they need, what they value, and looking for patterns, really. So we try to get really granular and speak to a small set of people really deeply. And then we try to be able to extrapolate that information um, across a wider set of folks. And so unlike market research, we're not going sort of like shallow with many. We're often relying on existing market research and data science approaches to do that work in advance of a project. And then we're diving in deeply and more qualitatively um, to learn what works from there. 
And importantly, in inspiration, we're not just looking to understand what people say and do, but like, what do they think and how they feel? And importantly, like, what are the gaps between the places in which the things people are doing and saying are actually out of alignment with the things they're thinking and feeling? Because often we find the reason different messaging or communications don't resonate is, is that gap between those two. Um, and as designers, our way of understanding people has a couple different tools that we have in our tool belt. Um, the first is co-creation and interviewing. So we try to make things as tangible as possible. Um, and so we bring prompts like the ones you can see here to help people um, share with us things like how they spend their money, what their priorities are, um, their concerns and their fears. And we find that when people are able to interact with something physical in their environment, whether that's a tangible card like this, where they're making priority sets, or whether that's a game that we're playing with people that we've made up um, to understand the dynamics of their life, that that tangibility really helps people articulate not just the things that are top of mind for them, but things they might not even have ever articulated to themselves before about their priorities and what they need. And so we try to create activities that help people connect with their deepest desires and motivations. We also meet with subject matter experts in whatever the content area we're working in is to make sure that we're understanding the nuances and concerns in the particular content, whether that's healthcare or education. Uh, we immerse ourselves in the context people are living in day to day. Um, if you ask me, for example, how I spend my time, I would give you one set of answers. If you followed me around today, you'd learn some things that I probably forgot to mention. And so we often find there's this gap between what people think they know and want and do and what they're actually knowing and wanting and doing. And so immersion helps us understand where those gaps are and what might be driving them. We also gain inspiration from analogous contexts. So these are contexts that might have similar qualities to where we're designing, um, but they're really different. And so they can help us see possible new solutions. Um, the example on the slide here is uh, IDEO many years ago was called in to design a uh, redesign the way that surgeons and medical professionals are working together in uh, surgery settings to try and reduce the presence of error. So if you think about that setting, right, there are some qualities that make it really particular. It is high stakes. Um, there are many people with different jobs who have to work in harmony. If there's a mistake, someone, there's, the cost is really high, someone could get sick or even die. Um, and so when you're thinking about how to redesign that setting, we both wanna look deeply within that setting, but also out to others that might have something to teach us. And so an example being looking at things like a pit crew from NASCAR helps us think about how does this other context that has shared some similar qualities resolve some of these issues. And an example from this project would be that in um, pit crews, often there's somebody whose whole job it is, to stand up and hold a flag up as long as someone is working on the car and they watch each person and their job is to make sure everyone's out of the way before the flag goes down and the driver goes away. And so it's not to say that we have to like insert a person with a flag in an operating room, but what it helps us think about is like what are some of the checks and balances and how that works and mechanics that can be brought into an operating room that might make it safer for everyone. Um, so I'll give you an example that's a little closer to the social impact work that Michelle and I do here at IDEO.org. Uh, so uh, we've done many projects around reproductive health, um, especially for young women. Uh, the first one of those we did about five years ago was in Lusaka and Zambia. And our design question was how might we increase access to contraception for teenage girls? And as I mentioned, really like that process starts with getting to know teenagers themselves. Um, anyone who has ever been a teenager or has one will tell you that like it's tough to talk to teenagers about their um, reproductive health and their sex lives with any without discomfort. And so part of what we did is give young people tools and cameras and the opportunity to document their own lives in ways that felt comfortable for them. And then we like brought them together to help us understand like what did they see through their own eyes in their day-to-day -day world? What were some of their priorities, fears? Um, and we were able to create prompts that allowed them to really express themselves and not just answer sort of a narrowly defined market research question. Um, a few big learnings from that project um, that will seem obvious in the retelling. Um, one is that the way that medical clinics were working in the context we were working in were out of alignment with the way teens were making decisions in their day-to-day -day lives, right? So having to make a appointment many weeks in advance, show up on time. Um, when teenagers are really deciding when and how in their relationships to um, engage in sexual behavior was not planned in that way. And so the sort of constraints of the clinic environment meant that young people were missing the opportunity to meet with a clinician in an important moment before their first sexual experience. Um, the second thing that we learned was that 
despite the fact that Mary Stopes, our partner, had spent so much time investing in the capacity of their providers, that the fact that the nurses and providers in their clinics were sort of like the age of the aunties and mothers of the girls they're trying to serve, that that created an intimidating barrier to entry that was just too much for young women in the many cases to get over, to even start the conversation. And then the third was that um, predominantly the messaging out in the community about the services that girls needed was labeled under the term family planning. And all the girls we talked to said, I'm not planning on having a family. I just accidentally got pregnant. And so there was this real gap in the way that girls were thinking about their decision-making and their experiences and the way that the, the opportunities and services were being communicated. And that felt like a really rich um, place to intervene. So then we move swiftly into the ideation phase where we start to imagine and test many solutions to these challenges that we'd seen. Um, and importantly, a big part of that is turning the challenges that we see into an opportunity for design. So for example, if the language of family planning isn't resonating with adolescent girls, then we wanna ask how might we explain contraceptive options and the tools available to young women in a way that's relevant to their daily lives. And we come up with many, many potential ideas to solve it. Um, and we quickly turn those ideas into tangible prototypes or experiments that can help us figure out what works and what doesn't. Um, we talk a lot about prototyping at IDEO.org, I think because uh, we find one of the reasons that campaigns, services often fail, the people they're aiming to serve, is because they're rolled out based on a bunch of assumptions. And so part of what we try to do with prototyping is remove the assumptions from the equation by testing something at a really small scale, extremely inexpensively with real people before we ever put it out in the world. I'm sure many of you have this practice in your own work as well. We are always trying to ask like, how could we try this tomorrow? How could we try it in a week? How do we get real data before we invest too much in anything? And so that can be prototyping a physical product like this birth kit that we designed in India where we um, brought uh, clinicians through to practice and give us feedback on the product when it was just made out of paper. Um, it could be digital tools like using WhatsApp and other tools to mimic the functionality we imagine for a future digital application um, before we spend money coding anything. Um, it can look like uh, miming and role-playing service experiences in an education setting like this one to understand what, what resonates with students. Um, or it can look like setting up physical spaces to understand how the environment is shaping people's behavior um, if we have ideas around architecture or space design. And a prototype at the end of the day is really just an experiment to help us learn, um, but it's also importantly an invitation for the people we're designing for to give us feedback and to be co-authors of the final solution where we land. Um, importantly for our managers and bosses, for all of us, it's also a strategy to de-risk our innovations, to try something bold and new, but have some confidence by the time we do that it might actually work. So in the context of Zambia, I'll bring you back to that project with Mary Stopes International. Um, one of the prototypes we tried was lowering the stakes of the first conversation and touch point with young women. And so we set up these nail salons in uh, local markets where we invited young women to come talk about love and relationships and get their nails done. And we had this hypothesis that maybe if we could have a lower stakes conversation first about something a little more frivolous and fun, that we could create a bond of trust that would seamlessly carry girls into a conversation about love and relationships and contraception with a little bit of a less intimidating start. And pretty quickly, we noticed that, um, you know, while in our research, girls, when we asked them about their love lives, were quick to look away. They didn't want to make eye contact with adults. And in the context of this nail salon prototype, they had somewhere to look and focus that allowed them to be much more comfortable talking about personal things. They're looking down at their hands, connecting with the woman who was doing their nails, and it created this communal environment that really made it feel like a much safer space. We also created aspirational messages that led with uh, traits and benefits of the different offers for young women and the services they could have, not just side effects and scary medical jargon. So instead of telling young girls, like the difference between these different options is that some of them will make you sick in this way and others will make you sick in that way. We included that information, importantly, that medical information, but we started by asking like, what are your goals? Where do you see yourself? Um, what are the things you want to do with your life and what are the barriers you see in regard to relationships and sex and helped providers have a much more um, sort of unintimidating conversation with young women that anchors in who they are and what they care about and then brings in medical information as a support to that um, in the, sort of the secondary thing. 
we pretty quickly learned that these both these prototypes were we ran many other prototypes, many of which were failures. Um, but because we only spent a little time and money on them, it wasn't a big deal. And we put in protections in place so no girls will be harmed by those failures. So we wanted to make sure that everyone felt safe, but also be able to try things quickly. Um, and this, both the messages and the low stakes prototype worked really well. So then we moved into an implementation phase where we really took what worked about those prototypes and design a cohesive service that could live on and has the assets and measurement systems and implementation plans it needs to be successful. So those divas, those characters we grew up, grew up, or those characters we started with grew up into these divine divas, this brand that resonated with young girls and really connected with their sense of aspiration um, and how they can take control of their own futures and their own health. Create a physical space in every Mary Stopes clinic in the area that invited girls to come in and have casual conversations without an appointment that they could level up to medical appointments if they wanted to, but um, where there was zero pressure and where they could hang out with other teenage girls and talk about girl stuff. Um, and then we created a training program for providers to help the providers create a consistent experience that was really welcoming to teen girls based on what we learned, as well as a set of young women ambassadors who could be the first touch point for this service. So these are near peers, older women who work for Murray Stopes, but were sort of a new category of employee who could really be the face of this service and supporting their fellow uh, young women and getting what they want and need. So that is sort of the process and action and how we use it to create services and communications that, that resonate with audiences. I'll hand it over to Michelle for a couple of minutes to share a couple more examples uh, domestically from here in the US. Awesome. So we're going to just jump into um, a few examples of HCD in action in a comms from a comms perspective. We're going to start with building a brand that resonates across the political spectrum. Um, so over 2.3 million people in the United States are incarcerated. Um, and despite the critical mass of people who want to change the criminal justice system in some way, um, the, the movement, of course, historically has been polarized fragmented and lacking in resources. And so we were brought in by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative to develop a name, a brand identity, a language, and an organizational strategy. As we embarked on the journey of designing the foundations for this organization, it was important to do so in a way that brought people into the process. The CZI team, which would then take on the name The Just Trust, wanted to create an approach that would be nimble, adapting to the unique needs of different leaders. We worked closely on designing a process to get there um, that represented different viewpoints from the justice system field, from left to right, from national to state-based organizations, advocates that were new to the field and more seasoned ones, as well as a mix demographically. Together with this team, we aligned on a combined vision um, grounded in four main goals, shrinking the footprint of the system, imagining and building alternatives for incarceration, investing in prevention and upholding the dignity and grace of anyone who comes in contact with the system. The Just Trust brand appeals to our shared humanity without compromising its view, point of view in the process by creating a thriving and resilient ecosystem for change across the nation. They're building a broad tent for reform. This is embodying the brand as well as the strategy, a bold and dynamic patchwork of action. And the website is one expression of that. They're starting their inaugural brand right now in eight different states with an initial fund of over $350 million. So jumping into creating a campaign to combat maternal mortality. Black women in the US are two to three times more likely to die during childbirth and 60% more likely to have a premature baby than their white counterparts. At the front line of the birth justice movement, there are parents, providers, doulas, lactation consultants, and community activists fighting tirelessly to raise awareness of preterm birth and improve the lives of parents and their babies. The UCSF California Preterm Birth Initiative looked tests to help build their momentum and amplify their impacts. We started by listening to their stories of resilience, mothers who hone their inner strength when faced with countless months at the NICU, communities of women holding each other up through high-risk pregnancies, and organizations working to reduce disparities in the face of racist systems. Sailing into prototyping with a synthesis share on research insights and opportunities for design, the IDO.org team and PDBI teams work together to place posters throughout the Bay Area to get feedback on different concepts and messaging. 
The team collaborated closely with over 100 parents, families, and movement advocates to develop unique messaging for the movement. The campaign visuals embody what they heard from birthing persons. They wanted to be portrayed as multidimensional, strong, and resilient at times, but also peaceful, loving, and soft. The photography features a wide range of people to illuminate the mosaic of voices of the movement. The messaging highlights individual stories, and a bold color palette creates frames that elevate voices of movement captured in the black and white photography. The goal of the design was to elevate their voices and create channels to amplify their impact. More than 20 advocate profiles were created and over 3,000 followers amassed on Instagram. Since its 2018 launch, the campaign has fostered mutual exchange, enabling pregnant people to access information, resources, and guidance, while also providing advocates access to community-informed research. Thanks, Michelle. Um, so those are just a couple examples from as far away uh, from where I sit in New York right today as Lusaka, Zambia, and as close to home as my home state of California um, around how we use this human centered design process to really involve people in the campaigns and messaging that will serve them. Um, wanted to take a minute to answer any questions that are popping up for folks. I see there's some Q&A going on. Um, since I'm driving, Michelle, do you wanna read out some questions and we can try and answer them? And sure. if folks have additional questions that are burning for you, please feel free to add them uh, into the webinar chat. So we have a question here about one of the, di the diagram and getting into divergent convergent part. Mm. Um, they're not really understanding that concept. Great. Can we dig deep into kind of what that means? Yeah. Um, so what does it mean to diverge and converge? It basically means like to diverge is to expand our sense of what's possible or to create possible choices and ways forward. And to converge is to make some choices and eliminate some options. And so in human-centered design, we often think about like the very first thing we do in the process is try and get as broad of inspiration as possible from many different people and voices with very different and, and often extremely different perspectives so that we can create the widest possible playing field of what we might create and intervene with. And so that's really a divergent exercise, right? We're going in many directions, we're exploring many possible futures. In the example that Michelle just gave about preterm birth, we're exploring many different campaign possibilities. Um, and then we at some point need to converge and make choices about which ones we're gonna move forward with, right? And so prototyping is really a process that helps us test many things and then diverge or converge quickly to make choices about which ones are most impactful to move forward with. Um, similarly, in the research process, we're getting so much input from our immersions and our empathy experiences and our conversations and our games are playing with people that we're at first trying to just be open to many, many stories and examples that tell lots of different um, dimensions of the problem we're trying to tackle. But then eventually we need to ask like, what's the most critical thing? What does the solution hinge on? What are the insights that'll really drive effective change in the outcomes we care about? And so um, as an example, those three insights I shared with you from Zambia, the one about the timing of clinic operations or the, the messaging around family planning, like those are not everything we heard um, boiled down, but they're like a few of the most important, most linchpin insights. Um, and so really we're like going wide, and then narrowing in the research. And then again, during prototyping, we're like going wide with many ideas and narrowing to make choices. And that's really like this, what this diverge converge diagram is showing. Okay, really good question. Um, how might we, is this intentional using this phrasing? Yes, great question. Um, I would say it is intentional, but it is not the only way you can phrase a design question. Um, I think, so to give a little bit of background, I, I come from previously in a past life before I worked in design, uh, I worked at many NGOs that were serving various populations. And I'm, I came back to this slide to share that like, I heard a lot about challenges, right? So there's, when you, you're trying to move the needle on healthcare, education, often you're sort of learning things like the kids that we're working with in this school aren't learning to read as fast as they need to, or the parents aren't showing up to parents' night, or the um, uh, doctors we're working with don't have great data about their patient populations. And these are all like many interesting challenges. And I think what often happens is that's like a closed fact, right? There's like that that is a true thing and there's nowhere to really go from there. And so often what we do is we take those challenges we're observing and we like flip them 
Um, and when you add the words, how might we to the front of it, they're an imperfect phrase, but a helpful one. It sort of turns that challenge into a question that could have many, many answers. And, um, you know, the how might kind of presumes there's an answer to any problem, that any problem could be surmountable with the right inputs at some point. Um, and we is really uh, an expression of collaboration. So we, IDEO.org designers, we, the communities we're working with, we are partners. Like, it's really to say, like, I am not the sort of the one to solve this problem. You don't have to solve this problem alone, but like given all of the resources and knowledge and capabilities that all the organizations working on this have, like what might we do? Um, and so it's intentional phrasing, but I think the most important thing is really learning how and building a muscle around turning a challenge you observe into a question for design. Um, and that's the thing I'm like most grateful for learning in my time in idea.org. Um, so I'm gonna kind of combine two okay. questions. Um, so can you speak to how you staff your initiatives we sometimes have challenges right-sizing the people for the work, which then there's another question that says, what does your recruitment of lived experience look like? Mm. This feels so hard to achieve because of historical systems of oppression and power dynamics. Yes. Sorry, what was the first one? <laughs> the I mean, second was not, big yeah, right. Um, can you speak to how you staff your initiatives? We sometimes have challenges oh, yeah. right-sizing. So yeah, I, I mean, I hear you, whoever that is. I also think staffing is such a it's so unique to your organization too. So I can tell you a little about what we do, but it really like, obviously depending on your area of focus will really change. Um, we generally staff a core team of three people on any project to be really tangible about it. Someone who's a project lead. And usually that person has a skill set that is really core to what the project needs. So if we know we're solving a problem around um, digital access, we might put an interaction designer, a digital designer in that project lead role. And then we complement that team with two other important skill sets, maybe like graphic design and design research that are important for the project. Um, but we do that so that we, on any project, have multiple people who think quite differently because they have different training, different backgrounds, and different expertise to bring to the table. And that's generally like our unit, our most important unit. And then from there, we often bring on other folks, maybe it could be like writers, architects, depending on what the project needs um, on an ad hoc basis. And we try to balance like, enough continuity in a core team to create the diversity needed for bold thinking and like as limited of a team as possible because resources are scarce in all the se sectors we work in. Um, so that's what I think about staffing. Um, the question someone asked about lived experience is such a good one and I think it's a term that means such different things in different contexts. For us um, and any project, we're looking for folks to co-design alongside us who live with the problem we're tackling every day. And sometimes that expertise lives within our partner organizations, right? So we work with an organization here in Brooklyn um, that serves their community every day. Everyone who works in that organization, including the social workers, are from the neighborhood. Um, and so in that case, often we'll find a couple of folks from our partner organization to really be, to round out that design team so that we have a mix of our designers who possess the skills to bring new things to life and our partners who possess like real lived and learned experience about these challenges. In other cases, we're working with partners who are not that well connected to the communities that they serve or not representative of them. Um, a good example would be that like, we work with the New York City government and there are some people in government who are representative of the communities we work with and others who feel quite far in their own lived experience. And in that case, we, we recruit people through community organizations who can be representatives for their community in the process. Um, and who can both code along, design alongside us, but also maybe more importantly, be arbiters of what good looks like. Like what is success? What is good enough? What do we measure? What do we care about? What do we wanna watch out for and stay away from? Um, and I think like we think good design is deeply, deeply collaborative in that way. Um, and that's a really important question. So I appreciate someone asking for it. As far as recruiting for lived experience, um, really that's a process of asking who is most impacted by the system or service or problem we're designing? Where do they live? Um, what is the lived experience of the folks on our team? We have a very broad and diverse team at IDEO.org. And so in various projects, we'll feel closer or further in our own lived experience from the work. Um, and then by mapping those things, you really get a sense of like, what's the gap in knowledge um, that we need to have and how do we find someone who can play that role? Um, so that's, that's how I'd answer that. So many good questions. Oh my gosh. Um, our organization also works with teens and young adults. Um, as you may know, their opinions, what is trendy in their lives and how they communicate changes so, so quickly. Very, very true. Yes. Um, how do you work through that within a lens of human-centered design? 
what is created this year might not work for the teen or young adult audience next year, but how do you balance that? Do you have to go through the same problem solving process each year? Oh, that's such a good question. Right? Um, yeah, I mean, teen teenagers famously fickle, um, and we do a lot of work with young people, uh, and our team, you know, are all over 18. So we are not always a good proxy for those young folks. Um, I think a couple things about that. One is, I think it's pretty easy to change the like graphic design of something and to update that with regular regularity. So if, you know, if our partners or the young people they're designing with are sort of like not into something anymore, you can make changes here and there pretty easily. I think what's hard, also it's, it's like relatively easy in the context of a globalized world to learn about what's trending and create something that sort of mirrors it. And so actually like, while we really invest in the visual expression and the language of the things we create, we know that like, to a certain extent, those can be reimagined to the extent that they need to pretty easily. What's hard to learn about and hard to uncover and hard to solve for are the sort of like core motivators, the principles that underpin that design. And so often when you think about a solution, I would say, let's say we rolled out a campaign, I would imagine that you would probably update some of the expression of that campaign, some of the visual elements, some of the language you might, um, based on feedback, consistent and constant feedback from your constituency. Um, but the, the core of it is, should really still stay rooted in that research because you don't want things to change so dramatically that you're like losing the heart of the matter. And so I think what we often encourage partners to do is they'll roll out a new brand or a campaign. Now um, we build measurement systems in for them to be constantly like listening and evolving those over the next sort of year. And I think if one of the things you learn through that listening is like, this doesn't resonate anymore in the way that it did, or the way young people were accessing this health center for get, getting mental health care really worked two years ago, but today it's feeling stale or they're not, like we're seeing numbers dip in uptake then that's a clue that we need to do like a mini human centered design process to answer that very small project. So you wouldn't want to be like constantly questioning every piece of your underpinning design, but what you can be doing is creating the listening system so that as you spot a small problem, you can do like a teeny tweak here and there and you're you're able to like move forward and continue to evolve as the times or people's tastes do as well. Um, can you lay out explicitly how you see human centered design translating for comms professionals and our work? Yes, um, explicitly. Uh, I think in the context of, it was funny because we're going to do a little activity and reflection that I think will be helpful with this in a minute. Um, but when I think about human-centered design, I think about and how it's different from the way I might have operated in previous roles for me. And I'd be curious, Michelle, if you have thoughts on this, is it's three things. It's taking a pause to more deeply understand the people I'm designing for before I get started with ideas. I think that's the thing we all think we do, but like I, I suddenly, I used to find that timelines and other pressures would have me making a lot of assumptions and leaps on my own. And so like really figuring out like, how do I really understand this audience and listen deeply before I do anything? I think the second thing is prototyping. So before I commit to an idea, how do I get real feedback from real people who are gonna be impacted by it? And then the third is collaborating across disciplines. So working with people who have different training, different lived experiences um, and different skills so that we can come up with more types of ideas together than any one of us could have alone. I found it previous roles, I pretty much only collaborated with, predominantly collaborated with people who had quite similar training to me. So if I was on the comms team, I collaborated with other comms team people and occasionally someone who might be working in another part of the organization. Um, but I think in human-centered design, we really try to expressly find teams that have lots of diversity across many dimensions. And so I would say the way you can incorporate it as comms professionals into your work is before you roll out a new initiative, a new strategy, a new narrative, like how do you really understand and get much crisper about who it's for and who in that audience you might not know as well as you think you do. And doing a little bit of like, like adding some activities into your process to be able to understand that audience more deeply. I think it's like time well spent, even though it feels like it slows down the process. I think the, on prototyping, it's really like, how do you force yourself to make a tiny scrappy version of what you're thinking about doing so that people can react to your idea as expressed rather than react to the abstract explanation of an idea? Um, so how do you create a poster that might be a really quick sketch of something you're imagining for messaging going out in the world or how if you're 
um, building a brand, what if you like take it out and show it to a few people in your audience, maybe donors and um, beneficiaries of your services before you approve what your agency is working on. There's sort of like tactical ways to test in real life that feel very quite simple, but there are steps we often miss throughout or we only show it to the people with the most power to get feedback rather than the people with the least. And I think human-centered design tells us like, we just show it to the people that are most representative across different dimensions. Um, and then in terms of like collaboration, I think that's pretty obvious, which is like, who are you calling into the room to help you uh, brainstorm ideas who would normally not be there, but might have an interesting perspective to offer? I think, oh God, I think we might need yeah. to pause on questions. Maybe with like one more, Michelle, it's a lot of pressure. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Okay, this is actually interesting. For the inspiration process, do you have thoughts, ideas, recommendations on how to approach a group of people or audience that is not as accessible to talk to, meet with, or do interviews with in order to dig into the emotions, feelings, and deeper motivations? Mm. I'd be curious about what we mean by not as easy to get in with. I think yeah. there's like a couple directions for that shows up for our work. Um, one is um, sometimes we're working with populations of folks that have been um, that are like hard to reach because they are distrustful of outsiders, um, generally for very good reasons. Um, and so I think in that case, um, if I don't feel particularly personally close to the community we're working with, I think then it's like my duty to find someone who is an insider, who is also excited about being a representative and really like build bridges with a community organization, like who is serving that population, who is getting through to them? And how do you build a trusted bond and an invitation for those folks to participate that feels um, like it respects and recognizes people's boundaries? So I think there's like a piece of hard to reach that's like that. Hard to get a hold of. I mean, there's other things which is like it's hard to get teenagers to talk about some stuff, or like there's sort of topics that can feel taboo. Um, we work on a lot of topics that can feel taboo um, or like really difficult. And I think we find that leveraging play in our research is often a really strong tool. So how do we build games or activities that allow people not to feel so like judged for their answers, like, as you might in an interview? Um, and then I think it was sort of like, what harder to get a hold of? Or I think there's another question, which is like, if a group is hard to get a hold of for you or hard to interview, uh, because you don't feel close like who's the missing partner in your collaboration that that could um that feels more proximate and so often if we're like it's really hard for us to find these people we want to talk to that's a signal that we're missing a collaborator um and so that can like help you build new partnerships um in that area also tactically we also sometimes recruit like on craigslist um one note i will say on on research while we're here is always pay people for their time never have a conversation with someone to ask for their perspective that you don't remunerate them for. I know we all, many of us work at nonprofits and budgets are slim, um, but I think that's like a really important ethic when we're talking about doing this sort of work. Um, so we'll pause there and as we, we're gonna leave you in, in five or 10 minutes, but wanna give everyone a chance to answer for yourselves um, the question that one of our colleagues so helpfully put in the chat, which is like, if three tools of human-centered design that you could start using in your own practice are like building deeper empathy for your audience and inviting them to create alongside you through research and co-creation, um, building to learn through prototyping and collaborating with more um, unlikely partners. Um, how might that shift some of the things that you're doing in your own work? So we're gonna suggest that everybody Take a couple minutes of silent reflection. I hope you have something to write on in front of you. If not, you can use your computer. Um, but think back on a project you worked on this year in 2021, whatever your role is, what's something that you, a project you worked on, ideally one that felt sort of difficult for whatever reason. And think about the process and then identify one or two things now that you might do differently using one of these tools to be more human-centered in the way you approach it. Um, and just take a couple minutes to think that through and then we'll invite some share back in the chat uh, in a couple minutes. So I'll mute myself while you do that.
All right, take like 30 more seconds to wrap up. Sorry, take like 30 more seconds to wrap up your thinking and then we'll come back together. All right, there's a couple, there's a bunch of questions in the chat about constraints of time, money, and approval of the powerful. So we will sort of close on that. Um, but before we do, I was hoping um, from the reflection time you had for just a couple minutes, anyone who identified an activity or a thing you might try or do differently um, would love to hear you, see, see you put it in the chat and, and get a little bit of feedback on what stood out, what are some things you might think about doing if you had had your project to do over again. Any tips and tricks? So go ahead and drop those in. And while folks are doing that, um, I will answer the many questions folks have around constraints. So I heard someone say, or I saw someone say, how do we, in the demands of high-speed work, how do we push back against the constant flow to make time for deep engagement? I saw another one about getting buy-in from senior leaders to be able to do this process and prototyping when you're getting pushback. Um, there was something else about cost somewhere in here, which there always is. Um, and so I guess I say a couple things. Um, one is I wouldn't think about human-centered design as this like, I'm going to stop sharing so you can see our faces. This all in either or either you're doing things you normally do or you're doing human centered design and you're doing it perfectly and you're doing it with like the perfect conditions. Um, I think of human centered design as like a little suitcase of tools that you can bring with you to any project. And that means that sometimes when you're starting out, either because of cost constraints or time constraints or leadership that doesn't feel bought into this process, what you're first starting with is like do one thing differently try one prototype, sketch out your ideas before you move forward with them, um, suggest uh, getting someone from your constituency of, that you're serving in your community to who can be like an advisor to your project, which it might be something you normally do. So like what, think about what are the one or two things you can add to your process that you think will make a difference from this toolkit um, and, and not feel like you have to make the case for the biggest version right away. And I say that because I don't just believe in this methodology because it exists. I think in my experience, collaborating more deeply with unlikely contributors or prototyping our ideas before we put them out in the world or doing co-creation with communities like actually improves the outcomes really dramatically and meaningfully. So if you start to take one or two activities and incorporate them to your practice, you don't have to do the advocacy for the more budget or the advocacy for the more time or the advocacy to leadership for the permission all at once and make a bunch of big asks, you're able to point at evidence of how the things that you tried, those small little experiments, added up to a better outcome. And so I think really just sort of like trying something and then being mindful of capturing what worked and didn't about it, then like people will pretty quickly inside of an institutional organization take notice of that, right? Because a lot of what we're doing with human-centered design is de-risking the things we do, making them more resonant. And if you're able to quantify that for the folks in your organization, um, you can often make the case down the road for a slightly more spacious approach that allows you to incorporate more of these tools more frequently. Um, but I think sometimes it takes starting with one or two little things. Um, and the other thing I will say, someone said like in a world of how do you make space for deep engagement? I think part of it is what I just said. I think the other part of it is deciding like when is breadth most important in the communication strategy I'm creating? When do I need to understand a large swath of people in a representative sample? And when am I actually just trying to reach a really hard to reach population? And in that case, like maybe I, breadth doesn't matter as much and I can take the same amount of time I would spend trying to reach many people and do a few more targeted, qualitative, deeper engagements with really representative leaders from a community. Um, and so I think it's like, sometimes it's about having more time and advocating for it, but sometimes it's also about like choosing depth rather than breadth in moments when it matters. Um, so that's what I would offer. What are you seeing in the uh, examples people are giving, Michelle? Um, interestingly enough, there's there's a couple that um, are speaking to how they can make their application process more human centered. Oh, which that's I really cool. love. 
love that. I also see like the idea of prototyping before you do an event mm. or a campaign. Yeah, and I think it's the question is always like, what scale of prototype is gonna be most helpful to you? And if you have a day or you have 10 minutes or whatever, like a mock-up can be simple. Um, you don't have to invest a lot of time and energy, um, which is super cool. Looks like we're at time. We're at time. So want to thank you everyone for joining us today. We really appreciate all these thoughtful questions and reflections you're offering. Um, if you wanna reach us, uh, IDEO.org, we are right there on the internet. Um, if you want to learn more about our work or if you want to get in contact with Michelle and I, um, we're pretty easy to find. Um, so really, really appreciate everyone joining and um, good luck with all your prototyping to come. <laughs>